I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 is um, among the highlights of Scripture. Not that there is better and worse texts of Scripture. They all work together to communicate singularly the glory of God and salvation by His grace. And some passages hold a, um, a point where intersection of these themes come with a greater forcefulness. Exodus 19 is one of those passages that sets up what we will understand really through the rest of the Old Testament and in a sense be unpacked for us in the New Testament. This passage is crucially important to our understanding of the whole of the Bible. It's also a bit of a mountaintop for our understanding of God. Exodus 19, I'll read the whole chapter, we'll pray, and then we'll take time to think through this wonderful portion of Scripture. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it, Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman." On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. 
And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let's pray. Father, we ask again this Sunday morning that you would take this passage of Scripture, unfold it before us, help us to understand it. Lord, I would ask that as we spend these moments considering this passage, we would remember that your word is the very word of God, that every word is inspired and breathed out by you. And so, Lord, as we listen and understand its meaning, we're really listening to you. Help us all to have the kind of hearts that receive your word with meekness, humility, and a willingness to have our lives changed as a result of what we learn. Father, help us not to be arrogant, think that we already know this, we don't have anything more to learn, but to think that we're perfect in holiness, we don't have anything to repent of. Help us, Father, to be confronted with you, the living God, the Holy One, who's full of grace and truth. Oh Lord, teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We always need to be reminded of both the holiness and the grace of God. Both are so crucial to our understanding of Him. If you overemphasize one to the detriment of the other, you have a distortion of who God is. If we are only reminded of His grace, we might be tempted to think that our life then is mere license to do whatever we want. We think God has accepted us and welcomed us, and that therefore, because we are in Christ and have found forgiveness of sins that we are now free to live however we want. If we're only reminded of His holiness, of His dominant purity, power, of His thundering voice, we may think all is law. And the only way that we can come to Him is if we have everything tied up in a nice bow of our lives, ready to offer Him perfection. And we have no access apart from that. In this passage, we see both grace and holiness. And the displays of both of these are so powerful that both of them can make us tremble. The grace that we see is so savory, so excellent, 
that it could almost make you feel like you're in those moments of falling in love where it makes your heart skip a beat. There are indications in this passage that the relationship you can have with God is so excellent, so wonderful, that it transcends all other relationships. And no relationship can come even close to the one that you can possess with the living God. If you ponder the truths that are here, you may be stunned at the kind of relationship that is offered between God and human beings. And we may feel drawn to Him, drawn to His excellence, to His kindness and His grace. And we feel we want to draw near to Him. We want to come close into His presence. On the other side, there is presented here a holiness that is so awesome that it likewise can make our hearts skip a beat, but not because we're falling in love, but because we're terrified. Like we've rounded a corner of a hike, and there is a dominating grizzly bear that looks hungry and ready to pounce. And your heart stops, and you can't move a muscle. And you dare not draw any nearer, lest that bear come after you. And you dare not run away, lest it chase you. The holiness of God that is presented in Exodus 19 reveals that there is such a separation from God that we dare not draw any nearer than He invites us to come. It is a holiness that is so powerful that it has to be concealed by a cloud so that we cannot see the whole of it. It's a holiness that makes our hearts tremble as much as the earth beneath our feet tremble. And we might wonder if it is good for our health to be as close to this God as we felt drawn near to Him when we see His grace. Key verses in this text is 19 verse 8. When the people, having been told about the grace of God and the relationship that they can have with Him, they respond in verse 8, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they have an intention in that moment to draw near to God and have this relationship with Him where they hear His Word and they believe it and they do what He says. But after this, in a passage I didn't read yet, but is of the same event, Exodus 20, verse 18 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Seems like a bit of a catch-22, doesn't it? They intend to draw near to Him, but then they see His holiness, and they don't want to hear Him speak lest they die. To go near is death. To go away is death. And so where will you exist Exist in this relation to this holy and gracious God? How can you possibly exist with Him? You cannot leave Him, for that is death, and you cannot draw near, for that is death. Before we get into the text, let me give you the most excellent answer to that dilemma. How do you draw near to a gracious and holy God and exist in His presence? 
And there really is only one answer for us. And the answer is His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that solves the problem of the holiness of God and the love of God, allowing them to coexist in the life of His people. The Son of God has drawn near to us, and the infinite glory of God has been wrapped up in flesh when He took on humanity and came to serve us. And He now was not the one who was smoking on a mountain with His fiery presence. He took on flesh as a servant so that people could come and touch Him and hear Him and look at Him and behold Him without being destroyed by His holiness. And with this one who took on flesh, he went to the cross so that he might endure the righteous and fiery judgment of God against the sinfulness of mankind. And in his flesh, he bore the penalty for our sins on the tree. And through that act of infinite love, he brings us to be released from the condemnation of God's infinite justice. And through this Splendorous act of grace, we receive now the forgiveness of our sins and access to the throne of grace in Christ Jesus. And not only that, but he also gives us his spirit, which is holy and truth and plants it inside of us so that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus with the old passing away and the new coming. So now that we have hearts not merely to say, we want to do your will, O God, but now the power to do it by his strength. In Christ, we now find our Lord, our Savior, our friend, our brother, our God, our source of life, our instruction, our peace, our joy, our hope, love, direction, purpose, and fellowship with God. In Him we are freed from the condemnation against our sin and we find eternal life. And through Him we have access to God's grace and without having diminished His holiness at all. This does not mean that we can just live however we want, but it means that we can have His grace in our life to live how He wants us to live, following His Son with our hearts instructed into living a life of love. If you find God to be only a God of never-ending demands that you can never meet, as if he just issues this list of qualifications and criteria that you must meet before you come to him, you're trying to come to him on your own strength and you have not met the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers us forgiveness. He satisfies his own demands for justice in the Lord Jesus Christ with much, something much higher than we could ever pretend to attain in our own strength. He gave His own Son to meet His demands of justice and to see just how pleased God was with His own Son. He raised Him from the dead to show that He accepted all that His Son had ever done, spoken, or thought. Put His stamp of approval with a finality on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you come to Christ, you know God is not just this God who issues an ever-replenishing list of demands. 
He is a God who gives you his ever-replenishing son of grace. On the other hand, if you've become so familiar with the love of God, and you're the kind of person whose bookshelf is only lined with chicken soup for the soul, and you only eat happy meals, maybe you need a dose of the holiness of God to remind it of the seriousness of the grace that he offers you in Jesus Christ. It is a grace not to welcome you to continue to live how you've always lived before. It is a grace to empower you to live a new life according to his holiness. And with an understanding of his holy grace, there comes a shift in you that is so revolutionary that you are willing to let go of your old self and deny yourself and take up the cross of Jesus Christ and submit to him, realizing that without Christ, your knees would be knocking together with fear and trembling if you ever entered the presence of this holy God, the God who shakes the heavens and comes down to earth. So this passage of Exodus 19, that's such a wonderful display of both God's grace and holiness. We come to it, all of us, to be nourished and reminded of how gracious a God He is and also to take seriously His holiness. context of this, te- of this passage is that Israel has been delivered from Egypt by the mighty hand of God. It starts off in verse 1 of chapter 19. That's the third new moon since the people had gone out of the land of Egypt. Three months now. And now they're at this Mount Sinai, the very place that God told Moses in Exodus 3, verse 12, that he would bring him back to with the people of Israel to serve God on this mountain. And now, as a verification to Moses that God has kept his word, they're back at the very mountain where Moses saw the fiery presence of God in the burning bush. This mountain location, Mount Sinai, is not exactly known. There's a traditional site called Jebel Musa that you can see pictures of, and it's a prominent peak in the wilderness of Sinai, a granite mountain, huge, about 7,500 feet above sea level. And before that is a plain about 5,000 feet above sea level. And there's Israel now on that plain before this mountain that God is going to come down and manifest his presence upon. Moses, through this text, you'll see, has a kind of yo-yo job. He goes up and down again and again, up to the mountain and down three times in this passage, and we'll see it again in the coming chapters, where Moses goes up to God, receives from God a word, and comes back down to the people and reports to the people, and then gets the word from the people and brings it up to God, and then receives a word from God and brings it back to the people, and up and down he goes on this mountain, much more than a leisurely hike. He's serving as an intermediary between God and his people. This location that they're at, Mount Sinai, is going to be a dominant theme throughout the rest of Scripture. It even comes to dominate some ideas in the New Testament. From this chapter of Exodus 19 through Numbers chapter 10, Israel is at Mount Sinai. That span of about 50 chapters or so covers one year in the life of Israel. 
Now, this is significant because up until this point in the Bible, we've covered thousands of years, basically from the creation in Genesis 1 until here with Israel at Mount Sinai. Several thousand years have passed in the course of these chapters. But now the Bible is going to slow down and spend about 58 chapters on one year in the life of Israel. Again, from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10, Israel is at Sinai. And it proves to us that this point in Israel's history is so important that they slow, it slows down, makes sure that we understand how crucial this portion is to understanding Israel's history as well as the rest of the Bible. It is the year of God giving His law to His people. And yet... In the midst of God giving his law, the summary of which would be the Ten Commandments, it's in a context of grace. It's in a context of grace because Israel is here at this point due to no merit of their own. It seems, if you've been attentive to Israel's history so far, in fact, not only do they, have they not earned any merit to be at this point relating to God, they deserve just the opposite. Since God has delivered them, they've grumbled at Him, they've complained at Him, they haven't trusted Him. We'll find out later that they've taken a penchant for the gods of Egypt and they've been idolaters. And yet God, out of His sheer electing grace, has taken His kindness to Israel and brought them here to this point. He's delivered them graciously, from the hands of the Egyptians, due to no merit of their own, no personal power that they possessed, no law that they had kept. He just heard their cry and determined that he is going to act by his sheer grace and love for this people. Moses emphasizes this, I think, beginning in verse 4, actually, God emphasizes this as he calls Moses up to the mountain. And there Moses is with God, and God opens up this portion of Scripture with these words. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, and then verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He's reminding them of his gracious act, of his powerful act, and how they experienced the mercy, the power, the love of God. And God describes his actions toward them as this, how I bore you on eagles' wings. God pictures himself like a mother eagle taking care of her chicks. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10 says, He found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, burying them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. God's kindness towards this people is so tender it's like a mother bird with its young. He cares for them. He has cared for them. He's borne them up on his wings. He sustained them. 
He's given them bread from heaven, water from the rock. He's made bitter water turn sweet. He's cared for them as a mother, her children. And all of this, again, is complete grace. There has been absolutely nothing that Israel has done to deserve this. Not one word, not one act that has merited them this. We're reminded that there is something we have earned. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's always been the standard. That's always been what we deserve. Because we sin against a holy God. Whether we're born under the law or we're born outside of the law of Moses, all of us know in our hearts that God is our creator, our maker. We know that He is holy and good. We see it in what He's made. Yet each one of us has gone our own way. Every last one of us has sinned. And the only thing that we have earned for ourselves is death. The wages of our sin. Israel has experienced God's grace. He's spared them the slavery in Egypt. He's been kind to them. And He's giving them, by His grace, a relationship with Him, their Maker. Israel's not just reminded of the way that God's delivered them and protected them through the, the wilderness. He also sees the gracious intention of God to bring him to himself. That's what it says at the end of verse 4. How he brought you to myself. It could just be a throwaway phrase. You could just read over that and kind of skip by it really quickly, but it deserves our attention to think, attention, what God has intended to do. He didn't intend just to get the Israelites out of Egypt's grasp and kind of set them free roaming the wilderness and then bring them to the land and give them lots of good food and uh, land flowing with milk and honey and freedom from the oppression of enemies. That wasn't his exclusive intent. His exclusive intent was to bring a people to himself that he would call his own, that he would have a relationship with. God is not a distant deity who just kind of winds up the world and lets it go by his providence. He is a personal God. He wants to have and intends to have a relationship with the people he chooses. The God of the Bible is completely unique in His intention to bring a people into a close and personal relationship with Himself. We see a hint of this in Jesus when He's calling His disciples. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says that He appointed the twelve, whom He named apostles, so that they might be with Him. And He might send them out to preach. He didn't just appoint them as apostles so that they could go preach. It was so that they would be with him and be sent out to preach. There's a relational element here. Not only do we get to have the presence of God with us, but he, amazingly enough, wants his, our presence with him. Now, we barely want the company of each other. And God wants 
to have our company. Why in the world would he want that? We say that of Israel. Why in the world would he want that? We've seen what kind of people they are. We're going to see what kind of people they are. We can extend that and we can say, I know what kind of people I am. I know what kind of people I'm going to be. And yet, what's God's intention in delivering us? To bring us to himself. The only explanation for that is that God is a God of love. He loves his people. There have been times that Priscilla and I have been really touched where there have been people who have just kind of taken a a liking to us. And we think, we haven't done anything. We've done nothing. And we don't attribute it to something likable about us. We end up just attributing it to us. They are really loving people. How much more our God who is a God of love and grace and desires a people that would be in his presence, that he would have a relationship with. So we see this grace. He goes on, God says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, we'll come back to that. He goes on to say, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. This is not like some distant relative relationship that you have a name only and if they end up winning the lottery, you'll reach out to them. God calls this people, or at least desires this people to be my treasured possession. That same word is used in Ecclesiastes 2.8 where it says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold, this is Solomon speaking, and the treasure of kings and provinces. This is a a special treasure of a king. It's a, a distinct treasure that not everybody has. It's something exclusive to an individual. 1 Chronicles 29.3 also uses it as David is making preparations for the temple He says, moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure, same word, of my own, of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. This was a personal treasure that David had that wasn't belonging to the people. It was what he himself possessed, and he's going to give it to the mean purposes of making the temple. Well, this is the same word that's used of God, but he's not referring to silver and gold. He's referring to a group of people that he regards as his treasured possession. He doesn't need the silver and gold and jewels. He made all of that. He owns all of the world, he says. All the earth is mine, and he owns everything. But with all of that treasure that he possesses, there is a special treasure, a treasure above treasures, and that treasure is his people. It's a king's treasure. Psalm 135, verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. It's a people. That's the treasure. God had selected Israel to be his own special treasure. 
And this treasure is going to be fit for his own personal use. To have a special relationship with him is to have a special place in his heart, but also a special purpose in his plan. Verse 6 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's grace extends to this people in that it will distinguish them from the rest of the world. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's not saying that Israel, which is going to have the Aaronic priesthood, those descendants of Aaron who will act as priests, it's not just saying that they're going to have that priesthood. It's saying that the whole nation is going to be priests in some sense. They're going to have special access to God in some sense, a special relationship to Him. There would be a class of priests that will offer sacrifices and make atonement and run the temple and tabernacle, but God is referring to a whole nation that has a special relationship and access to the living God that will be distinct from all the other nations. There would be a holy nation, a group that's set apart, whose ways are going to be distinct from everybody else. A nation that doesn't look and dress and act and eat like everybody else. A nation that doesn't live like everybody else. And this, says Deuteronomy 4, 6, and 7, is going to be their wisdom in front of all of the nations. People will look at Israel and think, what a wise and understanding people. Why? Because of the way that they keep the law of God. Now, of course, all of this is talking about the nation of Israel. This is speaking about that people that was delivered from the grasp of Pharaoh, brought through the Red Sea. It's historically rooted. This was an event in time spoken to a particular group of people, Israelites. And we can't just rip this apart and say, well, I want this to be true of me, and so therefore it is. We have to make sure that it's appropriately applied to us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We are not Israel. That is a distinct group of people. And yet, when Jesus Christ came... He flung open the door to reveal the mystery of God, which is that not only Jews are going to have access to this living God, but Gentiles also. Uncircumcised dogs, as the Old Testament would think of Gentiles, now become a people that are set apart unto God because they've been bought by the blood of God. God's beloved Son. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see that luxurious language that's used of Israel, now used of you. 
people for his own possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. All of this rooted in the grace of God, who by his mercy has chosen a people to belong to him for a special relationship with him. Revelation 1, 5, and 6 also says that from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22 offers to us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have access to God through the blood of Christ. We belong to him as a treasured possession because of the blood of Christ. We were made a kingdom priest to God because of the blood of Christ. This is a gift. And yet, we ought not to think that we can just live however we want to live. As God is making his intentions plain to Israel, he gives this conditional statement back in Exodus chapter 19. He says, Now therefore, verse 5, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Well, we know how Israel is going to respond to God's voice. They're going to hear it, and they're going to say, don't let them speak to us anymore. Moses, you speak to us. And then pretty soon in Exodus 32, we're going to find that they totally throw off everything God has said and make for themselves a golden calf. They are going to eliminate themselves from access into the blessings that God has promised here. Israel is given this condition. And the condition is instructive for us. Not because, in a sense, the same condition is placed on us, but to show that our, because of our inability to keep the law of God, we cannot ever experience the fullness of those blessings of God if they depend exclusively on us. If keeping God's law was the means by which we had access into a relationship of God, with God, we would never have access to it. That's part of the intention of the law of God is to just show us we cannot do it and we need the grace of God. But that is not the same thing to say that once you receive the grace of God now and the power of the Spirit, that you can now go on living however you want. We might look at what Israel says in verse 8 when they say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. You might think that's naive, it's premature, that it's arrogant. But listen to what God says in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 27. As it 
kind of recounts what happened here at Mount Sinai. It says, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. That's Israel interacting with Moses. And Moses now says, And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. That's referring to verse 8, where they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The Lord heard that, says they are right in all that they have spoken, and then verse 29 says of Deuteronomy 5, oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments. God is not against what Israel said. His desire is that they would have a heart. Brothers and sisters, that's the blessing of the new covenant that we live in, is that God promises that he will give us such a heart as that. And so, look at God's grace to welcome us into a relationship with him. And we don't look at it as just license now to do whatever we want. We look at it as, this is my God, and I want to live like he is my God. And I want to take verse 8 on my lips and now live it. I want to say all that the Lord has spoken me to me, I will do. Do you have that kind of resolve? Not on your own strength, but because of the grace that he's poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And so that you can take up Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And because of the Holy Spirit in your life, you say, Yes, Lord, by your grace I intend to live that way. Or do you pray like Colossians 1, 9-11, which says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You have the resolve matched with the prayer to do what this says, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him? You might think, that's just like alien stuff. That's just foreign stuff. No. God has brought you into a relationship with Him, given of His Spirit to you, so that now you will walk in newness of life, dead to the old self, living now in Christ Jesus, abiding in Him and letting His Word abide in you, and now you desire to live in a way that pleases Him by His strength. Following God is not legalism. Following God is saying, He is my God and I am His. Well, I have about ten more pages, but we'll stop there, and next time we'll look at the holiness of God revealed in the rest of the chapter. Let's pray. 
Father, your grace is really beyond the, the comprehension of our finite minds. We can say the words that your Son came and bore our sins for us on the cross. We can say that the Holy Spirit lives in us. We can even feel some of that. We can even say that we know that we are sinners and that we have broken your law horrifically. We can say that we know we deserve death and condemnation. We can say we know we deserve hell. Father, we have not tasted one bit of your just wrath. And we never will. We thank you for that. But Lord, we know that it's by grace that we're saved. We know that we have the Spirit because of your grace. But Lord, it just seems like what is painted for us in Scripture is so much bigger than what we feel at times. And I pray that you'd remind us of the sheer grace that is in our life to know you, to call you our God, to be brought into a relationship with you. Well, Father, I pray that we would know this and, and wonder and marvel at it, that we're your treasured possession, that we belong to you. Well, Father, I pray that you would also give us a resolve to live like it, like it's true, to live with you as our God and we as your people. Lead us in paths of holiness. Oh, Lord, please do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.